All right, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, we are going to be continuing our look at the Olivet Discourse, which is a discourse of, from our Lord Jesus Christ about the end times and the last things. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to try to get through 14 verses today. 14 verses today. Hopefully we can do it. 14 verses Verses 1 to 14. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, all the way to verse 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Did you hear the first question that the disciples asked? When? When will all these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, isn't that a question that all of us want to know the answer to? When? When will Jesus return? When, if you read the book of Revelation, will the wrath of God be poured out upon the earth? When will the seven seals be opened? When will the seven trumpets blow? When will the seven plagues be poured out? And when will the seven bowls be dispensed? And as we here this morning sit and wait for the events of the last days, what should we be looking for? While we're waiting, what should we be doing? Those of us who love and serve Christ watching and waiting, what ought we to be engaged in? 
When will believers in Christ know that they are in, or at least close to, the last days? How many of you have wondered about this very question? It's not uncommon for us, right? When we discuss the state of our world, the wars, the rumors of wars, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the lack of concern for life that is prevalent in our world, as we see the ever-increasing malice and strife and deceit and hatred of God, the headlong rush of the world into ever-increasing wickedness and evil, the natural question for many of us as we discuss these things is when? It's got to be close, right? If not soon, when? And in that way, we aren't much different than the Christians throughout the last 20 centuries who've also asked the question, when? who've all wondered the same thing and who've gone so far as to speculate and make attempts to read the signs of the times and have even gone so far as to make predictions and announcements about the when of the end of the age. Dates have been given many times throughout history. Here's a small sampling. In the earliest days of the church, the highly respected church father, Irenaeus, you may have heard that name, he is considered by the church to be the last, living, last known living connection with the apostles themselves. And he was a powerful defender of the faith against numerous early heresies in the second century. He lived and ministered around the year 130-ish AD. But even a man like this, he predicted the apocalypse. He predicted that the end of days would arrive by the year 500 A.D. Not too long after Irenaeus, the early church schismatic or heretic, a man named Montanus, claimed to have visions from the Lord himself, visions from the Holy Spirit, and he also predicted the imminent, close-at-hand return of Christ and then the commencement of the last days. And many of Montanus' disciples, they left their homes, they abandoned their families and their possessions, and they went and lived in the desert in the location that Montanus said Jesus would actually physically touch down. And it didn't happen. After Montanus, the French saint Martin of Tours, known to history as the father of monasticism, monasticism being the retreat from life in the world to live as a monk in a monastery, Martin, the lover and advocate for the poor, in the 4th century, he declared that the Antichrist had already come in the year 375 and would soon gain ultimate power by the year 400 and then he would gain ascendancy and the end would come. As you keep on going, even popes got in on the action. Sylvester II, the first French pope, was given the papacy in the year 999, and he said the world was going to end in the year 1000. And that set off a frenzy in the commoners who began preparing for the end times. The year 1000 came, the year 1000 went, nothing happened. And again after him, Pope Innocent III, remember that name, he was the most powerful pope in the Roman Catholic Church history. The papacy reached its summit and its zenith of influence and control over Europe during the days of Pope Innocent III. And he predicted the end of the world would come 666 years after the founding and rise of Islam. That would make the year 1284. 1284 has come and gone, and here we are. 
And even the Puritan pilgrims, as they landed on the American continent and founded the 12 con- established the 12 colonies, important spiritual leaders among them, like Cotton Mather, also advanced dates for the end. He did it at least three times, saying the end was going to come first in 1697, that year passed, then 1716, that year passed, then 1736, that year passed, here we are. And closer to our own days, the 80s. The 80s seemed like an absolute heyday. A decade where such predictions ramped up and people like, and you know some of you have read him, people like Hal Lindsey wrote books called The Late Great Planet Earth. Anyone read that book? Don't put your hand up. <laughs> Hal Lindsey, who is now an apostate, predicted the return of Christ must come within one generation. He defined a generation as 40 years after the reestablishment of the state or after the establishment of the state of Israel, which would mean that the end would have come in 1988. 1988 has come and gone. We are still here. Lindsay's, how Lindsay's predictions actually led others like Ken Wisenhunt to write a popular book in the 80s. Perhaps you've heard of it. It was not so subtly titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. And he declared in that book that the events of the end would start in September of 1988. And even as you keep going, Pat Robertson, founder and host of the 700 Club, in 1980, guaranteed that the world would end in 1982. And after that year came and went, he revised his prediction in a book titled, you ever notice they always want to do it in a book so they can sell that book, right? In a book titled The New Millennium, he suggested the new date, April 29th, 2007. Now, people tended to say general times, but here you got a guy saying, nope, on this exact date it would happen. In one of the wackiest of predictions, in my books anyway, in Leeds, England, in 1806, a group claimed that their chicken started to lay eggs, on which the words, Christ is coming! were written. And the news of these eggs spread throughout the towns and spread throughout the regions and hysteria increased as people were convinced. I mean, it's written on an egg. The end is at hand. And so they began preparing only to soon find out that these so-called prophetic eggs were nothing more than a hoax. And then lastly, most long... In my own personal experience, I remember the world was supposed to end on, at 6 p.m. on May 21st, 2011. At least that's what I kept hearing on the news. And as I sauntered that night at the AMC movie complex in Mississauga, waiting to enter the theater to enjoy the latest installment of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise... Those words flashed through my mind. The world is supposed to end tonight. At least, according to Harold Camping, the radio preacher and broadcaster, the leader of radio, family radio ministries in California, according to him, the Lord was going to rapture believers from the earth and rain down his terrible judgments against all who remained. And all of it, all of it would commence on May 21st, 2011 at around 6 p.m. At 6 p.m., according to Harold Camping, catastrophic earthquakes would strike numerous locations across the earth, signaling the end. 
Harold Camping taught his followers that Scripture, if you interpreted it correctly, actually revealed the precise timing for the judgment day. And he professed, of course, to know that date and confidently declared it for everyone to hear. And for that reason, even I, walking around Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, on this day, knew about this particular prediction. Because Camping's forecast had been picked up and reported on by news outlets all across North America. Perhaps some of you even remember. He kind of forced their hand a little bit because he was so sure of the date that he poured $100 million into advertising that the end was at hand on May 21st, 2011. And he enlisted numerous followers, many of whom quit their jobs, gave away everything they owned, and embarked on this mission of informing a wayward world of the rapidly approaching wrath of God and His judgment. He saw to it that 5,000 billboards across North America publicized the news. He purchased 20 RVs and wrapped them in banners, warning people to flee from the day of the Lord's vengeance and, had, and commissioned those RVs to drive all across the country. And the story gained so much news traction that I heard about it both on AM radio and on the news reports on TV. Every single one of them raked camping and family radio ministries over the coals and poked fun at this ludicrous prediction. But at 5.45 p.m. on May 21st, 2011, after all the reports, after the media's end-of-the-world bonanza, I couldn't help, right, but raise an eyebrow. I mean, there's wars and there's rumors of wars and there's all these things happening. I couldn't help but wonder, what if... What if this guy just happened to guess the end? Now, I wasn't sitting in fear or anything like that. I wasn't actually sitting in expectation about Camping's prediction, but I was aware that it was 5.45 and that the world was supposed to end in 15 minutes. And as the minutes ticked by, the thing that everyone expected to happen at 6 p.m. happened. Nothing. And as it's been for every single doomsday, every single end of the world prediction spoken throughout the millennia, the day came and the day went with not so much as a peep. Nothing came to pass and pirates of the Caribbean played on the big screen that night because nothing interrupted it. Now what does one do when they've put so much money out making these claims? What does a person do when they've put themselves out there like that? When so many have divested themselves of all of their earthly belongings because they believed what you had to say? Well, Camping responded by saying, well, you know, my timing was off. He must have forgotten to carry the one or something. I don't know. And so he restated his so-called prophecy, saying, actually, I've got new information. May 21st, 2011 was not the day of the Lord's physical judgment upon the earth, but it was the day when God spiritually, that's convenient, placed the entire world under his wrath. And it was actually on October 11th, 2011, a full five months later, when the physical judgment that he spoke of would rain down. Family, ministry, family radio ministry actually explained it like this, and I quote, We can be sure 
that the whole world, with the exception of those who are presently saved, are under the judgment of God and will be annihilated together with the whole physical world on October 21st, 2011, on the last day of the present five-month period. Five months later, October 21st, 2011 came, and you guessed it, it went with no rapture, no physical judgments, at least on the scale that Camping predicted, and after that, Camping went silent. On this, his sixth failed attempt to forecast the end. He'd made such announcements three times before, 1994, twice in nine, three times in 94, and one time in 1995. But this prediction proved to be his last. And after this, he would change his tune and he would even go so far as to admit, you know what, guys? I really don't know when the world is coming to an end. And in 2012, a very advanced in years camping communicated to his listeners that his practice of setting the dates had actually been a sinful practice. And he ought to have taken Christ's words in Matthew 24, verse 36, that no one knows the day that day and hour no one knows more seriously. Now, I, we could list hundreds more. This is only a small sampling of the numerous predictions that have been made throughout the centuries. And time wouldn't permit me to include the many forecasts of doom set out by heretical sects like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and all the others and the offshoots. Time wouldn't permit me to speak of the many so-called prophets and sages of the false religions all over the world or the predictions that are currently being made or have been made over the last five, five decades by atheists and climate activists foretelling whipping up alarm and panic. It seems like doing so is good business. Getting people agitated about the end of days is good business for some. And so entire groups and entire ministries and multi-volume book series and movie franchises and abundance of preachers have built their entire ministry and identity around speculating and around soft predictions about the, the events leading up to the end. And yet, after 2,000 years of this, here we are sitting together worshiping our Lord on this day at this church in these seats. Because the thousands of end times predictions that have all come and gone, every single one of them has been wrong. And why is that? Because as Christ made clear in Matthew 24, 36, concerning, concerning the timing of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. See, Jesus rather explicitly taught that no man, no man knows when the end will arrive. No man knows the date of Christ's return. And yet, even with this unmistakable word from our Lord, professing Christians throughout the ages have continued to ascribe to themselves a knowledge and an information that has been unknown to the angels. Unknown to Jesus himself during the days of his earthly life and ministry. What arrogance and what pride we as human beings can often bring to ourselves, right? Or often practice. To think that God reveals to us what he didn't reveal to angels or his own son when his son walked the earth. So, I want to set your mind at ease this morning. I'm not going to make any predictions. I'm not going to set any dates. 
because we can't and we don't know the day or the hour. However, our Lord Jesus Christ does, in our text, give us a wealth of information regarding how we are to live in the days leading up to the end, what we ought to be looking for as the day approaches, and how we are to respond to the agitations of the world as the day, as the end of the age inches ever closer. That's what we're going to look at today. How are we to live in the days leading up to the end? What are we to look for as the day approaches? And how are we to respond to the agitations of the world that we live in? So go back to Matthew 24, verse 2. Jesus revealed to the disciples as they were marveling over these buildings, the grandeur of the temple complex, and they called on, they called, the disciples called on Jesus to do the same as they looked around and they thought, look at these unbelievable buildings. Jesus looked at them in verse 2 and responded to their call for him to marvel at the buildings by saying, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And in saying this, Jesus was actually reiterating a prophetic word revealed by God through the prophet Micah in chapter 3, verse 12 of his prophecy when he said, when the Lord said through him that Zion, in Micah 3, 12, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the Lord a wooded height. In other words, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be turned into a heap of ruins. Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And the mountain of the house of the Lord, the temple mount, will become a wooded height, meaning trees will grow over the spot where that house once stood because it too will become a heap of ruins. And the disciples, familiar as they were with both the Old Testament prophecies and the Jewish expectations of Messiah and the events that would immediately follow the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, ask Jesus a question in response in verse 3. They said, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I want you to notice they're asking two separate questions here. For them, they believe it's one question, but they're asking two separate questions. The first is, when will these things be? Meaning, when will Zion be plowed like a field? When will Jerusalem become a heap of ruins? When will the temple be destroyed? And then a second question, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? A question that they asked in light of Jesus' words in 23, verse 39. When he told them, when he told the city of Jerusalem, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So for the Jew in Christ's day, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple was closely linked to the end of the age. In their minds, these two events would occur together quite rapidly. Jerusalem destroyed soon after the Lord would return to establish His earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And according to Zechariah, the Lord would pour out a spirit of grace, a spirit of pleas for mercy, which would lead the nation of Israel to look upon Him whom they have pierced and turn to Jesus in faith. This was the Jewish expectation of the disciples themselves as they came to Jesus and asked these questions. 
And you can see where they get this. If you read the Old Testament, you can see where and why they would think this way. Because if you just flip to Micah, I know your Bible just falls open to Micah. If you flip to Micah and you read Micah 3.12, the prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem and then immediate, what immediately comes after, you can kind of get an idea as to why the Jews would have believed what they did. <laughs> I can see everybody having a... Where is this book? What is it? Well, it's somewhere near the middle. If you're there, look at verse 3 to 12. We'll read the whole thing. 3.12 all the way to Micah 4, 1 to 4. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass, verse 4, 1, chapter 4, verse 1, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for the strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So you see, 312 and then you've got your chapter division, which wasn't there in the original, 3.12 flows right into chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And so this would lead the Jewish peoples to believe that these events were going to happen very close together. Zion and Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, the latter days would come upon them, and then every, all these great things would begin to happen quite soon after. When you read Micah, it actually looks like the destruction of the temple would be quickly followed by the return of the Lord to the city. And this would usher, quickly be followed by the return of the Lord to the city. And this would immediately usher in the latter days. And according to Micah, in the latter days, Jerusalem will be reestablished, along with the temple in Jerusalem. And the Lord will rule and reign over the nations from his throne in Jerusalem. And th at this time, his law would spread throughout the world from the city. That is how a Jew would read it. Now, in, the, in, in our days, we like to confuse it by spiritualizing it and things like that, but if you put yourself back in the mind of the disciples, they read this and they read it literally. For them, the nations would literally stream up to Jerusalem to learn from the king, and under the rule of this king, during this new, newly established kingdom, war will cease and nations will destroy their implements of war. They beat their swords into plowshares and instead of learning war, according to Micah, the peoples would sit securely and peacefully under their fig trees enjoying the abundant provision of the reign of God in Jerusalem. And general Jewish sentiment of the day saw all of this happening, like I said, in very quick order. When the city and the temple are destroyed, as per Micah, it will not be long until Messiah returns to usher in the kingdom described by the Lord through that same prophet Micah. And for this reason, the disciples bring this question to Jesus. When will these things be? 
meaning when will this destruction of the city and the temple occur, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? How will we know that you are about to return to fulfill the word of the Lord through the prophet Micah and through the prophet Isaiah? How will we know the time of your return to establish the kingdom to a, in a restored Jerusalem to close out the age, to terminate the age, to consummate it, to complete it, to close the times of Jerusalem's desolation? How can we recognize the signs of your return, Jesus, to judge the wicked, to put an end to this age of rebellion and sin and hostility towards the Lord, and in its place establish the kingdom promised to us throughout the entirety of the Old Testament? When, Jesus, will Israel cry out, Blessed be the name of the Lord, as per Matthew 23, 39? When will it take place? And as Jesus answers, he reveals something unexpected. Something the Jewish peoples had not actually considered. That there will be an extended, a prolonged season between the destruction of the temple and the events of the latter days. See, the Jewish peoples, while they have the general contours correct, their timing of the events were off because they could not fully grasp the purpose of the Lord. They didn't perceive or comprehend what Jesus had already taught them, taught the disciples back in John chapter 10. When Christ said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep, not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Did you hear that? In other words, along with saving his chosen people, ethnic Israel, the Lord also has a plan to save the other sheep meaning non-Jews, meaning Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord. He will make the two sheepfolds, that of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, into one flock and in so doing save, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel, ethnic and spiritual. And in so doing, the Lord will make good on every single last one of His perfect promises. And so for this reason, in order to make things clearer, Jesus announced to the disciples, in, as recorded in Luke, Luke 21, 24, these words, listen to them. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, there is an aspect of God's plan that is as of yet unconsidered by the, Gentile, or by the disciples. The destruction of Jerusalem would not directly and immediately usher in the last days. It wouldn't instantly result in the return of Messiah and the establishment of the Davidic kingdom on earth. But instead it would launch what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is a period of time where the mission focus turns from Israel to the Gentiles, to the sheep that are from another fold, to you, to me, if you're not Jewish here this morning. But also, in Luke 21, 24, he said, Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times are fulfilled. Now, this has been the, the case historically for the last 2,000 years. From AD 70, right up to our very own day, right up to this minute, 
Jerusalem has been repeatedly and persistently and consistently trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. It has never, since the destruction of the city in AD 70, been at any point in time fully under Jewish control. So if you go back, pagan Rome destroyed the city and rebuilt on the ruins of Jerusalem another city. And then later, when Emperor Constantine converted to the Christian faith, he rebuilt the city of Jerusalem and set it up as, a, as the center of Christian worship in the empire. But he banned or continued the ban of Jewish peoples from entering into the city. After the fall of Rome, Jerusalem passed into Islamic hands. And later, during the Middle Ages, during the Crusades, Jerusalem bounced back and forth between the European Christian empires and the Islamic empires. Then in the 16th century, the Ottoman Empire took control of the city and they held it until the end of World War I when the British took control of the city. And once the British took control of the city, Jewish immigrants poured back in and after much unrest between, and much, many, many riots between, many skirmishes between the Jews and the Arabs in the city, the United Nations got together and voted to partition the city of Jerusalem into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. And so even in our very own day, the Jewish people, since the destruction of the city in AD 70, have never boasted full unfettered control of the city, as even right now there are still parts of the city that are presided over by the Islamic world. And this will continue to be the case that Jerusalem is trampled in some way by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All of this to say... The answer that Jesus then gives to the question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, it's given in, the answer is given in two parts. As Jesus will speak of two separate occasions. First, when will these things be? That these things speaks to the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city proper. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, which will come much later than expected and be explained by Jesus in the next section of text. It speaks to the end of the age, speaks to the last days. And so as we look at what comes in verses 4 to 14, we must have prophetic words like Isaiah 2, which we read at the beginning of our service this morning, and Micah 4 in our minds as the backdrop. Because this is how these men, these disciples, would be thinking. They expect the immediate return of the, of the Messiah. These disciples are those who are not expecting that when Messiah leaves and the temple is destroyed, that they'll go through a season of wars and rumors of wars. No, they are expecting the beating of swords into plowshares. These are men who are not anticipating being delivered up to and put to death and being hated by all nations for Christ's namesake. No, these are men who are instead waiting for the moment when the nations will say, let's go up to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. They are expecting to sit under their vines and their fig trees during a season when with in which no one will make them afraid. This is what the disciples who are asking Jesus the question are anticipating. And so Jesus here, as he answers their questions, will prepare them for what will actually characterize the age between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And he reveals to them in our text six signs that will occur throughout the age. Six characteristics that have occurred throughout history past 
that are occurring now in the present, and they will continue to occur until the times of the end. And these, these signs will, of course, as time progresses, as we move closer to the end of days, they will increase in severity and intensity. And while it may very well be that we find ourselves in these last days, it could also be that we are, like the generations that have come before us, a thousand years away. We don't know. But however long it takes, Jesus has warned us. Jesus has informed us. Jesus has exhorted us and his disciples, asking him the question, that as you see and live through these six realities of life leading up to the end, be alert, be aware, be at peace, and persevere. These are the four things Jesus will exhort us to do as we look at these signs. So Christ's answer, introduction over, <laughs> Christ's answer to the disciples begins in verse 4. See to it that no one leads you astray. In other words, be alert be on the watch for, be on the lookout for, see to it that no one, no one, meaning not a single person, leads you astray. Make sure that everyone who gives you information or that you entrust to learn from, you entrust yourself to learn from, make sure that they are tested and examined. As you await the return of Jesus, see to it that you are not deceived and led away from the Lord. And this call to watchfulness among the people of Christ is reiterated over and over and over again because as we await Christ's return, you and I are engaged in a battle with a world that wants our mind. We're engaged in a battle with our flesh. We're engaged in, in all sorts of battles. And so you see, for example, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he'll tell them in chapter 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And again, in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And the Apostle John, also, little children, let no one deceive you. So the warning and the admonition of Christ to the disciples and to us is this. See that no one leads you astray. And for what reason? Why would Jesus need to give that as the primary warning here? What do we need to be alert to as we await the return of Christ? Number one, according to verse five, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will, they will lead many astray. Many will come. Jesus speaks here in the future tense, warning of many. That word actually means a multitude, a throng of people will come claiming to be what I am. They'll come claiming to be the Messiah. They'll come claiming to be the final prophet of the Lord. And as the Jews expected a political liberator, those with such political aspirations did tend to come and pretend to be the Messiah. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, the Pharisee, references two of them actually. In Acts 5, 36 and 37, he refers to Theudas, who gathered 400 men to his cause and then was killed and his claim to be a Messiah, the Messiah came to nothing. And then another man after him, Judas the Galilean, he also rose, gathered some men to him. He too perished and then everyone who followed him was scattered. And the Apostle John warned his readers that many antichrists had already come, according to 1 John 2, 18. 
So throughout history and up into our own day, there are a number of people who have claimed to be either Jesus reincarnated or Jesus returned to earth. And it's quite amazing to me how many of these imposters have actually led people astray. It has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to happen in this age. And some of the most tragic mass murderers and death cults have been led by men like Jim Jones and David Koresh and Marshall Applewhite, all of whom in some way, shape, or form claim to be Jesus. And as we move closer to the end, many will continue to come claiming to either speak for Jesus, to be Jesus, or claim to be the representative of God on earth. And in so doing, they will lead many astray. And so you, believer, see to it that you are not led astray. There will be many who come and claim to speak for God. They'll establish religions and movements all designed by the powers and principalities to keep people from turning to Christ, to keep people from persevering in Christ. God come to us in the flesh. So be alert. Because many are going to come, many have come, saying, I am He, and they will lead many astray. It's been happening through history, it's happening today. As I looked online, I read of no less than seven people at this moment on different places and continents all across the world who claim to be Jesus Himself and have large followings coming after them. See, the prophecy of Micah 4 indicates that the nations would know who the Christ is, and where he will be seated. But the times leading up to the fulfillment of that promise will be characterized by imposters come to confuse the nations about the true identity of Christ. So be alert. See to it that no one leads you astray. Second, according to verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, meaning there will be global agitations they will happen, they are happening, and they have happened. The word will here is a few, in the future tense speaking to the inevitability of such events. Wars, armed conflict between nations. And I don't think I really need to belabor this point, right? The entire history of humankind has been littered with wars and rumors of wars. In every century, at almost every time, there is some war being waged on our, in our world, right? Right? I mean, right now we've got wars being waged between powers over in Europe. And in every generation, it seems that the wars waged in their times lead everyone around to think the end must be near! The end must be near! And have you ever noticed that the nations always seem to place themselves at the center of prophecy? If you're in the West, you place yourself at the center of prophecy and whoever our particular enemy is in that day is Gog and Magog or whoever it is in Revelation. You ever notice that we're always the good guys and they're always the bad guys? And they're over there doing the same thing. They're the good, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We need to stop with all that. Verse 7 tells us, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. This is what will characterize the age leading up to the end. And know this, said Jesus, all of this, false Christs, wars, rumors of wars, famines and, and earthquakes, these are but the beginning. See that? They're but the beginning of the birth pains. So as you hear of severe food shortages resulting in starvation and death, 
As you hear of earthquakes and all the devastation that they bring to humanity, like we're hearing about in Turkey. Thank you for praying that for that this morning, Brother Bill. Remember that these events are the events that begin. They are only the beginning of the process. They are equivalent to the pains that intensify and increase as the time for birth moves closer. And ladies, you know, all the ladies' heads came up. Yes, we know. When the birth pains start, sometimes that could go on for a long time, right? I'm seeing a lot of head shakes. Yes. So if wars and famines and earthquakes are but the beginning of the birth pains and the end is not yet, then how are we to respond when we hear about them? Look at verse 6. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Do you see that? See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Christian, follower of Jesus, you whose hope and confidence and trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be alarmed. That word means filled with apprehension and filled with horror. Do not be troubled. Do not be filled with tumult or surprise at what's taking place in the world. Do not be alarmed by the frequent agitations and hysterics of our world. Don't go running and freaking out over every war and every rumor of war. Don't get angry. Don't get upset. Don't allow your mind to be more flustered and unsettled by these events than it is confident and hopeful and peaceful in Jesus Christ. These are all to be expected, said Jesus. They must take place, according to verse 6. But none of them, on their own, are sufficient markers of the end. In every generation, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be wars that rage on. And somebody will write some bestseller speaking about the current national events and their connection to the last days. Seems like every decade, some book like that is written. Attempting to prove that we're in the final stages. The birth pains are at their max. The baby is about to come. And here we are, still. People have been saying that for 2,000 years. Because it's good business. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Thessalonian believers, wrote to them about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and wrote to them about the rumors that were floating around in their own day. And he said this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Seems like throughout the scriptures, there is a lot of discussion about deception and the end of times being connected together. The end of times and our fear and agitation about that subject seems to make us ripe for deception. And so Jesus will say, calm down. Breathe out. Don't be alarmed because all of these things must take place. They're necessary, they're unavoidable, and they all accord with the divine plan and purpose. Don't be alarmed because everything's falling into place. Everything is happening exactly as the Lord has planned it to happen. God is in control, and for that reason, you who trust in Him need not be alarmed, need not be afraid. Instead, 
you and I who love Jesus, who rest our hope and our confidence in him, ought to be, as the world is going crazy, we ought to be the most peaceful, peace-filled, content people in the world because we know our lives are hidden in Christ with God. For that reason, always remember, Christian, always remember, you and I are ultimately untouchable by any world event until God says, it's your time to leave. It's your time to go and meet Christ in paradise. See, the prophecy in Micah 4 indicates that peace will reign as Messiah rules in Jerusalem. But Jesus warns the disciples, saying that's not going to be the case from now until, the return of, of, until my return. The times leading up to the end will actually be characterized not by peace, but by wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and numerous other global troubles and national distresses. So one, false Christs. Two, wars and rumors of wars. Three, along with false Christs and global anguish. Look at verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. They, meaning the nations, they will deliver you up, you Christians, you who trust in and represent Christ in and to the world, you whose primary allegiance is to Jesus. You will be compelled, that's what that word deliver means, compelled, forced into distress, affliction, and trouble. You will be pressed and crushed and squeezed by a world that hates Jesus and everything that he represents. By a world that hates the fact that you reflect him. You will be delivered up to tribulation. A word here that speaks to disaster, tragedy, and a shocking amount of adversity. And on top of that, the nations will put us to death. I mean, look out at the world today. Christians are being put to death all over the world. The fact that we get to sit here is not the norm. It is a blessing given to you from the Lord, which might very well be taken away in your lifetime. Because it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen that the nations will deliver you up to tribulation. They might put you to death, and you will be hated by all for his name's sake. And Jesus had already warned the disciples about this fact, saying the world would hate them because they hate him first. And he even went so far as to say, there will come a time when, according to John 16, 2, whoever kills you thinks he is offering a service to God. There's coming a day when those who truly speak with conviction for the gospel of Christ in the world, when people think they're doing a service for God, when they strive to shut you up or even put you to death. In many ways, it feels like those days are already here, doesn't it? They've arrived and they're increasing quickly. You will be hated by all nations for the sake of Christ because you shine as light in the darkness. Because you are salt to the world that preserves it and keeps it from running headlong into ruin. Because you expose sin and call people to faith. Because you call people out of darkness and into the light. Because your allegiance is to King Jesus over and above and against all earthly authorities, rulers, and powers. Because you don't go along with the flow of a world that is held captive to the demonic darkness. But you, Christian, always remember this. 
You are the reason that the wrath of God has not fully been poured out upon this nation and upon the world. Your presence holds back the wrath of God. Remember, go back to Genesis chapter 19 when God is about to pour forth his wrath on the city of Sodom. And Abraham says, if there are ten people, will you, dis- will you spare the city? And God says, yes. And then there's one man who is righteous according to scripture in the city, Lot. And God withheld his judgment against the city for that one man until he was gone. In fact, the angel said this in Genesis 19.22, I can do nothing until you leave. Lot's presence in Sodom stayed the hand of God's wrath, and God's wrath only fell upon it when Lot left. Do not underestimate your value and your importance in any society and culture in which you live, but also recognize that you will be, according to Christ, delivered up to tribulation, put to death, and hated. This has been happening to Christ's people from the beginning. This has been the repetitive cycle throughout the centuries. Christians who have lived unashamedly for Christ in this world are oftentimes delivered over to tribulation. Many have been put to death. Almost all are hated by the nations. And Micah 4, the backdrop, speaks to or indicates some level or degree of affection and respect for the people of God. But Jesus warns before the end of the age, my people will experience anything but respect and affection. Fourth, apostasy will become increasingly common among those who profess faith in Christ. Or as Jesus put it in verse 10, look at it. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many will stumble. Many will turn away. Many will be led into sin and apostasy. That word apostasy means they will abandon their profession of faith in Jesus. They'll denounce Jesus in order to save themselves in some way. Perhaps to save their lives or their property or their reputation or their financial security or in order to maintain the love of the world. And as they renounce their faith, it goes even a step further, said Jesus. They'll prove that to the world by betraying and by handing over those they once called brothers. They will surrender their brothers, their ex-brothers to the authorities and they will hate one another. A word there that means they will attest, detest their ex-brothers with an intensity of emotion. See, Micah 4 promised that people would turn to the Lord and run to him to learn more of his law in the times leading up to the end, or but the times leading up to the end will be characterized by the very opposite. Multitudes who profess belief and discipleship, but who, when the going gets tough, as some aspect of their lives is threatened, they shipwreck their profession of faith and turn against their former friends and relationships. These are all things that you need to be aware of and alert to, Christian. Not Christian, but Christians. Fifth, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, verse 11. Many who claim to be leaders in the church will rise up and by their heretical teachings, their desire for riches, their fleshly passions, they'll deceive the sheep and they'll mislead them and they'll cause them to look for water in different places. And those people will wander away from the Lord. If you look at the prophecy of Micah, however, Micah speaks of a time when truth is the rule of the day. But the times leading to the end, said Jesus, will be characterized by liars who seek to destroy the flock of God by their deception. Sixth, 
Verse 12, lawlessness will increase and lead to diminished love. As Jesus said in verse 12, because, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. As all of these different difficulties make life difficult for professing believers in this age, as multitudes fall away and abandon their faith, or they turn to false prophets who counsel people to follow the passions of their own hearts, Jesus said this will be a time characterized by the increase of lawlessness, meaning open defiance to God's law by those who may or may not profess faith. Lawlessness will increase, meaning it will abound, it will grow, it will multiply almost uncontrollably. And it will result of, and as a result, look at the words, the love of many. The Legacy Standard Bible actually phrases it like this, most people's love, which is an accurate translation. Most people's love will grow cold. Love will decrease. The flame of love among men will be extinguished. Believer, do you see why it's so important to hold fast to faith? Because the consequences of turning away from God, the consequences of not being alert, the consequences of love growing cold is increased lawlessness in the world. And this word could speak to senseless murders, crimes, and other horribly despicable acts that are committed without any sense of guilt, oftentimes in open defiance, and it leads to an increased hatred for life, both your own life and the lives of others. See, Micah 4 speaks of a time when the, the world is increasing in the knowledge of God's will and increasing in obedience to God's word. But Jesus here says, disciples, know this, the times leading up to the end won't be characterized by such things, but will instead be characterized by increasing lawlessness, love growing cold, and disobedience. So what is the call for you who believes and lives during these times leading to the end? What is your role living in a world that is marked by messianic pretenders, by wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and persecutions and tribulation and apostasy and false prophets and lawlessness and love grown cold? What is your duty and your responsibility? How then are we supposed to live? Well, Jesus has already presented us with two duties. First, go back to verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. Number one, be alert. Be watchful. Be on the lookout. Test. Examine. Second, in verse 6, see that you are not alarmed. Meaning, be at peace. Trust the Lord's plan. Trust His will as you watch everything unfold and come to pass just as He said it would. Third, verse 13, endure. You see that in verse 13? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this isn't a works-based gospel. It's not saying that you must endure to be saved, but that real faith will be exhibited by your endurance and your perseverance. Faithful believers will respond to this increasingly wicked time, this increasingly wicked world, by clinging ever more closely to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will courageously proclaim the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the name of Christ alone, even if it means persecution and or death. They will not give up their confession of faith. 
See, true salvation, true faith will be proven genuine. It will be revealed and evidenced by those who persevere through the most difficult trials and difficult and terrible of times. The one who endures, the one who persists, the one who refuses to stop, who resists, who continues on in the faith, these will be revealed as those who are truly saved. And the truly saved, according to Jesus, will be delivered. See that? The one who endures to the end will be saved. They will be rescued. They will be brought to safe harbor. These will be given eternal life. Number one, be alert. Number two, be at peace. Number three, persevere. And fourth and finally, keep on proclaiming Jesus. Our role in the world as the agitations increase is to keep on proclaiming the word of the gospel. Look at verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. If you want to look for signs of the end, pay attention to the spread of the good news throughout the world. Pay attention to the glad tidings of salvation in Christ proclaimed to all all over the world. Ask missionary organizations, how is it going? How is the gospel advancing? How is it being proclaimed, meaning heralded and announced publicly, out loud, with words, by faithful, enduring believers who are risking their very lives to do this very deed? How is it going in your own sphere and in my sphere among the people that you know? Are you proclaiming the word of God? Are you proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said the gospel will be preached as a testimony to all nations, meaning that by it God will reveal as those who hear and believe his children. And those who hate God will be revealed as they reject and condemn the gospel being preached to them. (coughs) As the gospel goes forth, the nations the individuals within the nations, the peoples of the earth, the ethnos will either accept or reject. They will call out to Christ or they will rebel against him. And when the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the whole world, then the end will come. If your primary consideration as to how you ought to be responding in this world isn't, we need to preach the gospel to the world. If it's anything else, if anything takes over that, you're doing it wrong. The gospel must be preached throughout the world. If you are hoping to see the end, then instead of fixating on what's happening in the world around you regarding wars and persecutions and possible restriction of your liberties, which Jesus said would come, focus on the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. You, go and tell people that they can be forgiven by God through faith in Jesus Christ. You, go tell people about Jesus, who is God, come to us in the flesh, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who died a sin-bearing, sin-atoning death, and who for all, with faith in his name, gifts them, bestows upon them his righteousness as he bears in himself the just penalty for their sins. As we live in these times leading up to the end, in closing... Jesus speaking to the disciples left you and I four duties. And I just want to reiterate those four duties. This is your role as you live in the world leading up to the end of the age. It's not to read books. It's not to speculate. It's not to predict. Your role is to be alert, 
to be calm and peaceful, to endure and persevere, and to never stop proclaiming the gospel. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the warnings that Jesus gave us. We thank you that as we look out at the world and we see all of these agitations happening, that you have already told us that these things would come to pass. And you've already given us how we ought to respond to them. And we thank you that those of us who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the name of Christ alone, that we can be confident that in the end we know you win and we win with you. So Father, I pray that you would give us peace and confidence and hope. I pray that you would give us boldness to preach the gospel, whether we're standing in chains before magistrates or whether we're in our neighborhoods preaching and proclaiming the gospel to our neighbors, whether we're carted off into to some other country, whatever, wherever you have us, I pray that you would give us the same boldness you gave to the Apostle Paul who just simply proclaimed you in every situation he found himself. Let us always remember that our primary role in this world as we continue to progress toward the end is to be ambassadors calling people to salvation in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.